Hey dog people of the internet, welcome to Cog Dog Radio, a podcast all about dog sports, behavior, and training. I'm your host, Sarah Stremming of the Cognitive Canine, and I can't wait to share my behavior cases, training revelations, and general geekery with you. Let's get started. Okay, you're back for the anticipated episode two of case study on Keen the Border Collie. If you did not listen to episode one, you're going to want to stop and go back and listen to that first. In episode one, I outlined that Keen's got some stranger-directed aggression, some dog-directed aggression, his bubble is way too big, and Jenna was pretty much doing everything right. So in this episode, we're going to talk about the more right things that we did and of course, we're going to uncover that mystery of what the missing link was for Keen. So as I mentioned last time, we altered Keen's exercise a lot. One of the problems is that he couldn't settle in the home and Jenna was kind of doing everything right on that front. So we flipped the script. We provided high intensity exercise in the form of Frisbee and bike joring, the bike joring less successful than the Frisbee. And the results were that he was able to settle after those extremely high and those extremely high intensity bouts of exercise. Please hear me loud and clear. Most dogs need more decompression, more off-leash in the woods than they need this. If your dog is not getting either, start first with the woods, then try this. This high-intensity stuff, usually easier for people to give because they can go to a local park or even their backyard and throw a toy. It is usually not helpful and often makes things worse. So be very, very careful if you're going to implement that with your own dog or with one of your cases. We also altered his woods walks uh, to really indicate to him clearly that they were for sniffing, which is that he had to be on a long line all the time. If he's on a leash, he understands he's supposed to go around and sniff. If he's off leash, he thinks it's work time. And so we just said, okay, then you're going to be on a leash. The stranger directed aggression. We attempted multiple different things. Um, The way that I tend to go with aggression is that I will be a little bit experimental in upfront in the beginning. I'll try a few things. I will see what I think is going to give me the best results. And then we will run with what I think is going to give me the best results. I don't just throw spaghetti at the wall. I'm always using a formula. I always have a well thought out plan. It's just that I will try multiple programs sometimes to make sure that I'm in the right program for the dog. So first of all, um, we tried kind of a DRA. So that's a differential reinforcement of alternative behaviors procedure, AKA kind of a redirection procedure using food rewards And so what that would look like is Keen would notice the trigger. He would be cued to do something else. So cued to do behaviors, maybe sit, watch Jenna, and he'd be fed. That was mostly done in setups with helpers, but was also done in the real world. So it kind of looked like see the thing, be cued to do the other thing, be reinforced with food. If he became triggered, he was cued to go to his middle, which is uh, just setting up between Jenna's legs. And Honestly, this work was still laden with too many reactions and way, way, way too much food management. So if I can't get away from management pretty quickly in my program, I want to alter my program. I don't want the dog heavily managed during actual therapy. 
I want the dog managed during all other parts of his life so that he's not practicing the behaviors that I don't want him to practice, but I don't want him managed within the therapy, if that makes sense. So if I have a set up therapy session, whether it's real world or whether I'm controlling the triggers, I want it working for me in such a way that if the dog's going to make the choice to be aggressive, that I can have an appropriate response to that choice without needing to really hover over the dog, preventing that choice because that choice is kind of too dangerous to make or happening too often. Okay. So if we're still confused, let me give you some clear cut examples. If Jenna is set up with Keen outside, say a pretty low key storefront, And so she knows people are going to come and go out this door. And so she can kind of use that to her advantage. It's low key. So there's not going to be people coming up behind her. Um, Not going to be a lot of people that she can't predict. She's in a, she's in a good situation to use real world triggers this way. And of course, all precautions taken to make sure that nothing bad's going to happen here. If she's set up in that scenario and Keen has an aggressive response even 20 to 30% of the time, then we aren't exercising the therapy that we want to be exercising because we don't have the ability to respond to those outbursts, those aggressive responses in such a way that's productive for us. So if we're going to leverage those responses, like if we're going to use those responses for learning, we need to be able to control the trigger especially if we're not using an aversive tool on the dog. So at this point in our training, Keen was wearing a martingale and a harness. So he had two points of connection, primarily using the martingale as his guidance. And so it's not like he's wearing a prong collar or an e-collar that I can actually administer a correction if he has that aggressive response. And that's not part of the program anyway. So that means I'm not going to leverage that error. The other way I could leverage that error is by having the trigger stop, having the trigger freeze until he stops aggressing and then have the trigger move on. But this is real life. And so these people are going to keep heading to their cars and they might even look at him and be like, wow, and then keep moving to their cars. And so the functional reinforcer of the human leaving his space still exists. And so I can't block reinforcement for those responses. And so I have to minimize those responses as much as I can. And I don't want to minimize her by scattering food over his head every time that I think he's reaching threshold or calling him away every time I think he's reaching threshold or you know, luring him away every time I think he's reaching threshold. Those are management solutions that I could use out in the real world when I'm not trying to train and I'm not trying to be in therapy and see my episode with Amy Cook, where we talk about why it's really important to have both things, to have times when you're not in therapy and have times when you are. So with this program, it was too laden with these aggressive reactions, which are getting reinforced every time they're happening and way too much management to try to avoid those things. So we moved into a more uh, constructional aggression approach, a cat type of approach. We used all setups for this. Jenna 
is a super client. And so she even got walkie talkies. <laughs> so she had a walkie talkie and her helper had a walkie talkie. And so they could communicate about when the person was going to appear and when the person was going to go away. We tried two iterations of this. And just to back up and explain the constructional treatment approach, it would be that the trigger would appear. If Keen offered nonviolent behavior, the trigger would leave. If Keen offered violent behavior, the trigger would not leave until he offered nonviolent behavior and then the trigger would leave. And that's a very Cliff Notes um, version of what I'm doing here. And so I will post some resources in the show notes in case you're interested in learning from people who are really well-versed at this. So we tried two iterations. We tried one with Keen stationed and we tried one with the person stationed. So we tried an iteration where Keen was literally stationed on a platform and a person would appear because again, remember surprises, part of the, part of the trigger for him. And so the other way that we tried it is that the person stayed in one spot and Keen was the one that moved. So he got to leave. He got to get away from the person if he offered that nonviolent response. And again, that dedication check on Jenna purchasing walkie talkies, <laughs> the walkie talkies were in use for this. And it's honestly really brilliant. And I think if you're working at a distance with aggression, walkie talkies are a great way to go. These were reaction free largely. So we achieved that goal of not having to manage too hard to avoid reactions. But the problem is that we needed very specific responses from our helpers, which led to an overly contrived situation that did not translate to real life. And as Jenna puts it, Keen learned the game really fast as he does. And then he knew the game and he knew how to win the game. We have these really sharp dogs who have a lot of training under their belt. They can learn to trust a training scenario really, really quickly. And then that scenario may not translate into real life. It's not that that's not helpful. It's not that the scenarios are not helpful in the long run. I actually think they are. But again, you're going to need a middle ground. You're going to need a translation into real life that was not going to happen for us in these setups. So because they were so contrived and they had to be so contrived so that we would have the correct responses given to Kane, we were not seeing value in the real life iterations for him. So we had basically no reactions, no aggression, no matter what we had the trigger do. And that's great, except that we also had very low translation into real life. So enter the third type of therapy we attempted. And trust me, I don't think any of these were useless. I think that everything we did helped Keen. We finally landed on the third therapy that we attempted, which was essentially the first therapy, but with adjustments to both the handling of reactions and the reinforcement procedure. So that was a differential uh, reinforcement of alternative behavior, a DRA approach as well. This time we use a toy reinforcer rather than food. And again, here goes Keen flipping those norms, flipping everything on its head. I would typically use a low arousal type of reinforcer like food rather than a high arousal type of, of reinforcer. I don't ever want to override the dog's concerns about the environment with their reinforcer. And that's why I like to keep that reinforcer kind of lower arousal. But after a long discussion, of what we really felt like the function of Keen's aggression was. 
is that we attempted to merge kind of a functional reinforcement approach with that DRA approach. We arrived at, you want to bite something, bite this instead. Rather than kind of going on the assumption that Keen just wanted the thing to leave, we went on the assumption that Keen maybe actually did want to bite the thing. And I could go down a rabbit hole on this as to why I believe that's not always the case and to why I believe that it's sometimes the case. With Keen in particular, his breed, his background, his breeding, it seemed plausible that an actual bite would be reinforcing to him, if not because of the fact that he really just wants to bite down on something, but maybe because he wants to control something and that's how he believes that he can. So I'm getting a little bit in the weeds there talking about those things. And I don't want to get too far off, off base and too far into kind of speculative, what was keen thinking and feeling land. So what we did was we changed that reinforcement strategy to biting a tug. The reason we were able to do that successfully is because Jenna had excellent, excellent stimulus control on toys with Keen. Again, I cannot stress enough that you cannot just take an aggressive dog that likes to play tug and have them become triggered and then ask them to redirect to the tug and have that fix your problems. That is not what we did, not by a long shot. And most people do not have the kind of stimulus control around toys that Jenna had with Keen. So if you at a bare minimum cannot cue the dog when to bite the thing and when to eat food instead or lie down instead or do a nose target instead, even though you're doing the same exact thing with the toy, then this is not for you. This is not on the table for you. So if your client, if you think this might work for a client of yours or for your dog, the first thing you need to ask is how's that stimulus control around the toy? Can I guarantee that the dog's not going to bite the toy at the wrong time and that the dog is going to bite the toy at the right time? Because if I don't feel really, really good about that skill set, this is not for you. This is off the table. So what we then did is we would allow Keen to become triggered. And again, let's define that. And let, let me also bring in that Jenna's immense skill and timing is why this was successful. Because he couldn't be in an aggressive response. He needed to be approaching threshold, not over it. So she would see him begin to approach threshold. How would that happen? He might whip his head. He might push his ears forward. He might tighten his mouth. At that point, Jenna would cue him to bite his tug. Again, those prerequisite toy skills, he was able to disengage from the trigger upon hearing his cue to bite the tug 100% of the time. That never failed. Vital to this procedure, and I talked about this when we talked about the original DRA procedure is that we can cut off reinforcement for that previously established behavior that we're trying to get rid of. So that's what makes a differential reinforcement procedure different from just positive reinforcement. Um, just a positive reinforcement procedure in our humane hierarchy is that in our differential reinforcement procedure, we are also not allowing access to reinforcement for the behavior that we're trying to eradicate or change. So in our previous iteration, we were not able to do that. We were not implementing any kind of control over Keen. If he attempted to aggress, we were also not able to control the triggers. And so what I decided to have Jenna do, and again, 
because this is in her repertoire with Keen, is to just swiftly run her hand down the leash to his Martingale collar and just hold onto it and wait for him to make a different choice. And the different choice tended to be eye contact. Stog has a history of his collar being taken, his collar being held in kind of in, in positive ways. He has a history of the collar being held, meaning try something else. So that's already trained. And the second that he would give that eye contact, she would let go. She would ask for another behavior, like a nose touch, a sit, a down, a spin. And then she'd reinforce with that tug toy. So to go over it again, the final procedure that we landed on and the one that gave us huge, huge outcomes was we would put Keen in a potentially triggering scenario. We use those storefronts a lot, again, just like we used in the initial iteration of this. When we would see him approach threshold, we would cue him to take the tug toy. If he aggressed, which would happen typically if Jenna missed his approach to threshold because he went from 20 miles from the threshold to over it in you know less than half a second's time, which happened on occasion. Again, if that were the majority of the time, this wouldn't have worked. It was not the majority of the time. It was a low, low percentage. Probably the highest percentage she ever hit was like 30% of the repetitions in any given training scenario. So we were still at a 70% success rate there. Anytime he did aggress, she would run her hand down the leash straight to that martingale and hold tight. She didn't take his feet off the ground. She didn't choke him. She didn't physically turn him away. And she waited. And when he made eye contact with her, she let go. And then she asked for a different behavior. And then she reinforced with the tug. Now, really, really important that we get all that right. Collar hold, eye contact, let go. Dog maintains eye contact. Then we cue the next thing. If you do collar hold cue, you skipped two things. If you do collar hold eye contact cue, you skip something. It is collar hold, dog offers eye contact. You let go, dog maintains eye contact. You ask for a behavior, you reward. I do this in a lot of situations, not just in aggression and not just not even only with the collar hold. I will sometimes return a dog to station. If I'm working a dog on station, they become aggressive or reactive from the station. I will remove them from station physically. I might do that with a collar. I might just do that with the leash that's attached to a harness. I hold the dog off station. When the dog offers eye contact, I allow, I loosen up and allow the dog the opportunity to return to station. If the dog maintains eye contact, we get back to work and we get back to our high rate of reinforcement. Why is that effective? Because you are cutting off access to reinforcement for the undesired behavior, which is actually a vital part of any differential reinforcement procedure. And I think it's missing in a lot of um, R plus training plans. I don't think anybody would be opposed. Anybody in my R plus circle would be opposed to exactly what Jenna did if they saw the video. And I believe, and with Jenna's permission, I can put some clips over in Patreon of what she did. But I do need to say again, this relies heavily on prerequisite skills. Here are the prerequisite skills that allowed this to be possible. That excellent stimulus control on the toy, Jenna's superb observational skills, because again, this was all virtual. So I wasn't standing there next to her telling her what to do. The clear cut procedure that relied on the prerequisites of 
dog understands collar hold means try something else, or maybe even understands collar hold means offer eye contact, right? The maintained eye contact before we give direction and then the quick return to reinforcement. So if we can't do all those things, we don't have the prerequisite skills of the collar hold, the toy reinforcement, and that huge repertoire of other cues that Keen has, then we have to go build those things. Otherwise we have to go build those things outside and away from triggers. So that's what we did for human directed aggression. Let's talk a little bit about dog directed aggression. Uh, Jenna just curated the dogs that she slowly started to introduce Keen to. So essentially remedial socialization is all that she did for him in this regard. She only walked him with females who would not tolerate any of his kind of circling and darting in. He never like got in dog fights or attacked or bit other dogs. He was mostly obnoxious and inappropriate. And so she walked him with dogs that would just ignore him or correct him aggressively with their teeth for, for that stuff. And he didn't retaliate. He was not exposed to dogs otherwise. And that's a really important part of remedial socialization is that you only expose them to dogs that are teaching them the right stuff and you don't expose them to dogs that are teaching them the wrong stuff. Finally, as I mentioned, I really felt strongly that we were missing something with Keen. And so we were plugging along. We were making great progress with his human directed aggression, but I still felt that way. Over the course of coaching, I had asked several times about health and Jenna was thorough about his health. But then one day, and this was a few months into coaching, Jenna shared a Facebook memory with me of Keen walking around a farmer's market. And she was sad about it. She was like, I just want this dog back. Like, why, why don't I still have this dog? And I asked her to really dig deep and map out a timeline for me of when things changed. Because if he went from farmer's market to biting someone at a scent work day, something happened in there, right? So we discovered through being really diligent in our timeline that Keen took a major turn for the worse about eight weeks, kind of to the day post neuter. That was a red flag for me. It's not something that uh, comes up often. It's not something that I go, oh, well, that's it. Obviously he has post neuter aggression syndrome. Like that's not a thing, right? But I said, oh, that, that must mean something. So I started investigating. And um, if you follow me on Facebook, you may have seen me asking about hormone replacement therapy for dogs. And if anybody knew anything about it, or if anybody was willing to talk to me about it, I got a bajillion unhelpful comments. And then I got one extremely helpful private message from a previous client and a friend who reminded me that she has a dog who's quite fractious, has some high levels of aggression that appeared to be a sudden change in her as well, post-pregnancy. And this person is a diligent researcher. And so she really dug in to the human literature on, you know, behavior, mental health changes and health issues that might contribute postpartum. And she found that a zinc deficiency could lead to these outbursts and these responses. And she had her dog tested, found her dog to be deficient in zinc, started supplementing zinc. And, um, and this is the client who reached out and it did not cure her dog, but it made an enormous difference, an enormous change. 
So I had Jenna in the meantime, reaching out to her fabulous veterinary team about hormone replacement therapy. And then I reached out to her again. I said, Jenna, I think I want you to investigate this zinc thing. We found out that it's a really special blood test. It's not cheap. You have to order a special vial for it, um, yada, yada. But again, Jenna's the kind of boots on the ground person who figures all that out. She and I both have amazing connections in the veterinary world. And so we got out, we got this figured out. We found out what the right test is, what the right supplement is, if he was found deficient, et cetera. And we tested him. And that's when Jenna messaged me in all caps that Keen is deficient in zinc. It was a really low deficiency, not, not anything glaring. And she started supplementing him. And when she started supplementing him, which by the way, you can't just go get over the counter zinc because it has copper in it. And these dogs are specifically deficient in zinc and not copper. And so you don't want to add more copper. So that's a whole thing. And I'm not advising you, you need a veterinarian to help you with all of this. If you think this is what's going on with your dog and probably it's rare. So it, I don't know. It's probably not what's going on with your dog, but we joke, we call him zinc Keen. Now he needed it. He's different now. He is so much closer to being that farmer's market dog than he ever would have been if this stone had not been unturned. And he even does agility now. Okay. Do not go tell people that I said that zinc cures ETO. <laughs> do not, do not do that. I am not saying that he does agility now. He doesn't jump full height, but he, he jumps and he's not crashing into stuff and he does agility well. And he's able to have that as part of his high intensity exercise that really helps him. Um, and it's a big, big deal. So to date, if I believed that there was something wrong with the dog, I haven't been wrong, but sometimes we can't find it. And this time we're really lucky because we did find it. And some of my clients are really diligent and they dig really deep and they still don't find anything. And I just, my heart goes out to them because Jenna was one of the lucky ones. She dug deep, she did the work and she found it. And that's mm -hmm. what's going on with Keen. So I can't wait for you to hear my chat with Jenna about how Keen's doing and how all of this was for her next week. Thanks for listening. Please be sure to subscribe and leave me a review. If you'd like to support this podcast, head over to patreon.com slash cogdogradio. You might even hear me answer your question on the show. For more content like the stuff you heard here, check out my online courses at cog-dog-classroom.teachable.com.